I want to begin this morning before we look at the text with a question. Uh, why do you come to church? Uh, said another way, why do we do this specifically? Why do we gather in a big group? I mean, isn't it true that we can do much of what we're called to do as Christians uh, without programs, without big buildings, without church staffs and salaries that go with that, without guitars and lighting and so on and so forth? And I think the short answer is yes. We absolutely could do this without those things. And so what is unique and distinct about uh, the way that God calls us to gather? And as we look at the, the book of Deuteronomy, I want to sort of keep that question in the forefront of our mind. Why do we gather corporately the way that we do in these pockets, what we call the local church? And what do we see in Deuteronomy in, in God's ancient people uh, that, that applies to us today, or that, that can instruct us today in this idea of gathering corporately and being unique and distinct? In fact, that's the second question I want to wrestle with, is what is distinct, what differentiates God's gathered people from those other cultures and groups around the world at the time of Israel and even here today uh, as we gather at Groton Bible Chapel. So that's going to sort of undergird where we're going this morning. Uh, we're going we're gonna to be passing through chapter 13 and kind of jumping into the middle of chapter 14. Uh, chapter 13, beginning of 14, really deals with uh, God calling his people to ongoing holiness in two areas. One is dealing with externals, such that he says if a prophet or a leader or a family member or even an entire community seeks to lead you astray, you're to execute them. And then he deals with some internal things. He says holiness also has to do with you individually. And he, there's a list at the beginning of chapter 14 of animals that you can eat and animals that you cannot eat. Now, when Jesus comes, he kind of reverses this whole idea in Matthew's gospel when he says what causes you to be defiled is actually come, what comes from out, outside of you from your heart. And Paul pushes this to the nth degree when he says offer your bodies, your whole self as a living sacrifice. That's the essence of, of kind of what we would, if that, that was basically the sermon on chapter 13 in like a minute. But uh, we're going to be jumping into chapter 14. And our big point this morning is that God's people should be marked by a joyous generosity. We're going to focus on that word joyous. This is an extremely uplifting couple of chapters. And there's this, this sense, in fact, we'll call it sort of a micro series for this week and next. Uh, this sense in which God's people are actually mandated, commanded to celebrate. Or, or to put it in a, in a cultural context, to party. They're mandated to have parties, really. And we're going to look at that. And what the, well, now we'll define that. We'll qualify it. But you'll note that, that the way that God's people are mandated to celebrate, joyful generosity, distinguishes them from the larger culture. And certainly that's true for God's people today. So we're going to dive into all of this. Hang on to your hats. There's a lot in this morning. And uh, why don't we pray together before we do that? God, this is really, this is your word uh, Lord, it's not my words. Uh, Lord, as we look to the Bible, we look uh, to be instructed, to be taught. Uh, Holy Spirit, we would ask that you would be our instructor, that each one of us, myself included, would sit under your teaching as you guide us through your word. Uh, Lord, it's amazing to us that this ancient text that applies to this small group of people in ancient Mesopotamia would apply to us in 21st century America. And so, Lord, would you speak to each heart? Would you speak to us as the gathered people of God here at Groton Bible Chapel. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's begin. We'll begin in verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 22. And we're looking at this idea that you're going to see right away of generosity in first fruits under this idea of being mandated to celebrate. So 
1422 begins, each year you are to set aside a tenth of all the produce grown in your fields. You are to eat a tenth of your grain, new wine and fresh oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to have his name dwell, so that you will always learn to fear the Lord your God. But if the distance is too great for you to carry it, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far away from you, and since the Lord your God has blessed you, then exchange it for silver. Take the silver in your hand, go to the place the Lord your God chooses, and you may spend the silver on anything you want. Cattle, sheep, goats, wine, beer, or anything that you desire. You are to feast there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice with your family. Do not neglect the Levite within your city gates, since he has no portion or inheritance among you. At the end of every three years, bring a tithe of all of your produce for that year and store it within your city gates. Then the Levite who has no portion or inheritance among you, the resident alien, the fatherless, the widow within your city gates may come and eat and be satisfied, and the Lord your God will bless you in all the work of your hands that you do." So an interesting passage that begins with this idea of celebrating the tenth. There's the yearly tithe that was to be observed, and then every three years there's the tithe collection to provide for those less fortunate. Really what's at stake here is there there are three things that people were to to take note of in being generous with their first fruits. Uh, They were to have the provision for that, they were to prepare for that, and there were certain people that they were obligated to in that. And again, that distinguished them from the surrounding culture. So let's look at the provision first. A tenth of all their stuff, a tenth of their produce, their animals, and so on and so forth, that they were to bring uh, to the place that the Lord would call his own. And we know from later in the Old Testament, that was Jerusalem. At this time, that was not known. And so they're to bring that tenth to Jerusalem and then have this celebration. Now, if they happen to live remotely, like far away from Jerusalem, they could actually sell and exchange those Uh, the the best of their stuff for silver, bring it to the city, re-exchange it, and purchase the things that they needed to celebrate, and then continue on from there. By the way, this is sort of the background to the text in the the Gospels when Jesus goes into the temple, and of course, he overturns the tables of the money changers. The money changing was not the issue. The Old Testament, as we can see, has provision for that based on this issue of trying to transport all these goods and animals, you know, a long distance. The issue was the corruption of the money-changing process. The issue was the deceit that was involved in the way that was happening. The issue was that it was happening inside the temple courts. And the issue is that it extended way beyond just uh, 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 changing silver for animal sacrifices. It became a market. And Jesus, of course, says that his greatest concern there is that his father's house be a house of prayer. But this is the background text to that. And so they're to, to bring the best of their stuff. Verse 26 is really our key verse in this passage. And it says this, When you get to Jerusalem, essentially, you may spend the silver on anything you want. Cattle, sheep, goats, wine, beer, or anything you desire. And then here's the key sentence. You are to feast there in the presence of the, your Lord, of the Lord, your God, and rejoice with your family. Imagine that God is commanding his people to feast and rejoice, to have a party. In fact, I think this might be a theology for potlucks that we find in the Scripture. Something that Christians are very good at, by the way. We have a couple of people in our church that are really passionate about potlucks. And so I know you're taking notes right now. See, it's in the Bible. But you've got to speak to one issue here, right? Like, what about the, the, a potluck? Imagine a church potluck where there was beer and wine. Well, that would change the dynamic. And why is it here? 
Now, if you were raised in a fundamental background or a, or a conservative Baptist background or whatever, you were probably raised with an extreme prohibition against alcohol, right? That was, the church that I grew up in, this one, was very much that way. So how do you reconcile this text where in the Old Testament, Moses is telling his people to bring those things into the, into the, uh, the city to celebrate? Uh, again, growing up here, uh, there was this sort of this teaching that, well, the, the um, fermented drinks in the Old Testament really didn't have much alcohol in it, and so it was more like bringing juice, which is just not true. Uh, and and if <laughs> it's not accurate to ancient cultures. I mean, there's some measure of truth to that. Uh, but we know from Jesus' miracle, the wedding in Cana in Galilee, uh, that the issue is not the potency of the wine. In fact, the wine that he, could, uh, that he does miraculously, that he brings to bear, is, is more potent, if you will. And so sometimes, uh, you know, that, by the way, that miracle is one that was, I mean, there were uh, theological gymnastics to try to teach on that when I was growing up here. So what is being taught? Well, the, the principal teaching on alcohol, there's a, there, you can look at the full counsel of Scripture, but, but the key verse is in Ephesians 5 where Paul says this, Do not be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says, don't be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So two principles there. Number one, the Bible's uh, teaching throughout Scripture that reaches its apex in Paul's teaching is consistently don't be drunk. The Bible teaches against drunkenness. And let me add this in our cultural context. That means buzzed too. Okay, let's be truthful. All right? If you say, well, I'm not drunk, I'm just buzzed, then you're, you're asking the wrong question. But here's the more important point. Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, alcohol should almost be not a thing in your life because you're consumed with wanting to know God and to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to pursue a relationship with Jesus, that that's the thing that you're driving toward. Now, but this is still in the text. So how do we reconcile that? Well, anything that's a fleshly appetite, uh, there are two principles. Number one, God's model, God's design. Right? What is God's model, God's design for engaging uh, and expressing our sexuality? It's marriage between a man and a woman. What is God's design for other fleshly appetites like alcohol and food? Again, some of us grew up in a culture that those things were prohibitive. I would use the word, if you look at the full counsel of Scripture, discernment. That as a believer in Jesus, you are called to discernment. And I will tell you that legalism is far easier than discernment. Right? Because legalism just says no always. Right? Discernment means I need to have an active relationship with God that involves a pr an, an ongoing prayer life that says, Lord, what do I do in this situation or that situation? Now, I will say this. If you have an addictive personality, you, you know yourself. If you have a family history that has alcohol or substance abuse uh, in it, if you have a personal history yourself in that regard, absolutely you should, you should not imbibe in those things. We have a Celebrate Recovery ministry here on purpose and it's not just about alcoholism or substance abuse. It's for any hurt, habit, or hang-up. But it's been a tremendous help to those who struggle with alcoholism. But again, discernment is the order of the day. And let me add one last thing. And I know I've, I've popped the cork, pun intended, uh, on something that uh, we could spend a whole sermon on this morning. Discernment in this area, and, and teaching on alcohol in general, completely got... Uh, passed over, and the other area that got passed over when I was growing up, and I think is still largely true in the, in the church today, is the area of gluttony. It's interesting that if, uh, you know, in, again, in the church I was growing up in, in some Christian circles, if you were to have dinner and someone would order a glass of wine, uh, certainly historically here, there'd be all kinds of judgy-judgy going on. 
But coming to one of those potlucks and having three, four, five desserts was actually praised. <laughs> it was lauded, right? And that's something that we, the Bible speaks very clearly about. In Paul's lists of sins in Corinthians and elsewhere, he lists gossip along with murder and, and other kinds of like more heinous sins, or gluttony rather, gossip too. <laughs> Here's the point, discernment, discernment. And part of discernment is being in relationship not only with the Lord, but with brothers and sisters that can help you make those choices. But even with that context as a background, the kind of celebrating, even if it did involve beer and wine here in the Old Testament, was to be different than that of the larger culture, which we know from Canaan, and as we get deeper into the scripture, was basically, and I'm not, I'm not uh, overstating it, was often a drunken orgy. And so God is differentiating his people within their own culture. And, and that comes through not just the pre preparation and the provisions they were to provide, but the people that were involved. How does he say to do that? He says, you are to rejoice with your family. It happened within the family unit and the people of God, and then the Levites were to be included in that. And so as God's people uh, set aside their provisions for the coming year, 10th uh, tithe celebration, which, by the way, is probably the Feast of Weeks, which we're going to talk about next week. Um, and as they prepared and went to Jerusalem, they were supposed to be prepared to include Levites who didn't have a physical inheritance in the people of Israel. The, the modern equivalent would be, uh, for those of you that raised your kids growing up, saying, let's leave an open chair right when we have dinner in case there's somebody that's in need or somebody that we want to invite over last minute. Although some people would say the empty chair is for Jesus. I didn't grow up with that tradition. Um, but, you know, it's this, this idea, the idea here is a generosity in our first fruits. The idea that we give God the best and that God mandates this rhythm of celebration, this rhythm of festival, this rhythm of partying in his people is to point themselves back to him and his goodness. And here's the thing, the privilege of giving the God, God the best of what we are. As some have said, time, treasure, and talent. Right? God wants the best of who we are. And that shouldn't be a burden, an obligation, drudgery. And these rhythms would be celebratory so that they would reorient their hearts. So for us today, we could ask the question, do I celebrate the privilege of gathering, singing to God, and the privilege of giving him the best of my stuff, of my efforts, of my very life? You know, we do this here in a lot, a lot of ways. We talked about this over the last week or so with, uh, you know, helping the church in Ukraine and helping the church in Haiti and uh, helping the church in, in New London or even in other parts of Groton, right? We do this, we give God our best. Generosity and first fruits. Well, let's look at the next section as we tackle this idea of generosity and forgiveness. And it's probably not going to be necessarily apparent right away as, as Moses talks about debt forgiveness and generosity to the poor. So listen to what he says in chapter 15. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how to cancel debt. Every creditor is to cancel what he has lent his neighbor. He is not to collect anything from his neighbor or brother because the Lord's release of debts has been proclaimed. You may collect something from a foreigner, but you must forgive whatever your brother owes you. There will be no poor among you, however, because the Lord is certain to bless you in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. If only you obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow every one of these commands I'm giving you today. When the Lord your God blesses you as he promised you, you will lend to many nations but not borrow. You will rule many nations but they will not rule over you. 
If there is a poor person among you, one of your brothers within any of your city gates in the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Instead, you are to open your hand to him and freely loan him enough for whatever need he has. Be careful that there isn't this wicked thought in your heart. The seventh year, the year of canceling debts is near, and you are stingy toward your poor brother and give him nothing. He will cry out to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty. Give to him and don't have a stingy heart when you give. And because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you do. For there will never cease to be poor people in the land, and that is why I'm commanding you, open your hand willingly to your poor and needy brother in your land. Interesting passage, talking about this rhythm. Again, there's a frequency every seven years of canceling debts, and then there's an ongoing command of being generous to the poor that are in the land. And what is the essence of what Moses is talking about here? We're really seeing, a lot of ways, uh, Moses' theology of poverty. It begins with what seems like a contradiction, right? Moses will say, you shall have no poor in the land. And then he goes on in verses 7 and 11 in particular to describe what happens when there are poor in the land. Well, this hinges on the reality on the ground in a broken and sinful world, even amongst God's people in verse 5, where he says, if only you obey the Lord your God. And verse 11 is the realist. If, God, if verse uh, uh, 4 is the ideal, God's ideal, verse 11 pre- presents the reality. You will always have poor in the land. Therefore, there's opportunity. And God gives this if-then statement in verse 7, where he says, uh, open your hand, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted, but open your hand uh, to the poor person. There's this sense in Scripture that a hard heart yields a tight-fistedness. And a soft heart yields an open-handedness. But there's also this sort of cyclical thing that can happens, happen where the discipline of being generous, being open-handed, can soften the heart as well. That's kind of what Moses is getting at in this theology of poverty. Be willing, be generous uh, toward the poor, and in debt forgiveness in particular, because of the rhythm of debt forgiveness, be generous. And I love that the Bible uses the word stingy here. You know, it says, don't start thinking to yourself, you know, okay, we're only 18 months from this, from this seven-year debt. Can't, you know, he'll make it. He'll be fine. He'll get by without my help. No, be generous. Have an attitude of leaning in. These are very hope-filled chapters about the goodness of God and, and the, not only the mandate to celebrate, but the great joy and privilege. God's people should be marked by a joyous generosity, whether it be just being generous to the poor or even forgiving debts. And of course, what the Bible does is it immediately moves from this, these rhythms of physical things, like canceling monetary debts that were owed, to spiritual pictures. We'll look at Paul in that regard in just a minute. But think about a society that had a regular routine of releasing people from debts that they owed. Think about how they would approach when there was a relational debt because this was ingrained in them, and how much quicker they would be to forgive. Just as they were mandated to celebrate, have these festivals and parties, they're mandated to release each other from debts. And this is exactly where Paul the Apostle goes in Romans 13. After teaching so systematically the gospel, in the latter chapters, he gets into these really practical teachings. Do this, don't do that, in light of the gospel. This is what he says in verse 8 of chapter 13. He says, let no debt remain outstanding 
accept the continuing debt of love to one another. Love is a powerful motivator toward forgiving sin. And in the scripture, there is this cyclical nature toward my, my generosity and willingness to, to forgive you that my heart would be led along by my behavior, but also having a tender heart that, that moves me to a point of being forgiven. And we'll see why in a few minutes. By the way, this is the essence of what Emerson Egerich gets into in his book, Love and Respect. This is what he says. He says, you know, men are generally wired, if you look at the Bible, to desire respect and affirmation. Women are generally wired uh, to, to yearn for love and adoration. And yet God puts us together in these pairs where what's required of us, of us is the opposite of the thing that comes naturally to us. Right? And so there's a need to be dependent on God, to be able to be loving when I don't feel like being loving in the case of myself as a, as a man. There's a, a need for my wife to be dependent on God, to respond respectfully. And so he talks about these two cycles. He calls it the crazy cycle and the energizing cycle. He says the crazy cycle is when I'm unloving toward my life, wife and she responds with a level of disrespect. And because of that, then I'm unloving again or unkind in some manner. And then she responds with maybe rather than affirming, even speaking ill of me in public. And, and then you're in the crazy cycle. And you're probably headed toward a broken relationship, a broken marriage. He says the energizing cycle is the opposite. And I would argue from Ephesians chapter 5 that God puts the primary responsibility of cycle breaking on the man. That if you're in the crazy cycle that you, uh, you uh, respond in love, and I'll use the buzzword, unconditional. That means without condition. That means even when she responds with disrespect or not affirming you, that we respond with love as Christ loved the church, laying down his life for the church. And thereby, by the grace of God and, and prayerfully by the power of the Holy Spirit, at some point, with even just a modicum of responding to that love with respect, that engenders a response of love again, and then a response of love, uh, of respect and affirmation. And now we're in the energizing cycle. Now we're moving toward a healthy marriage. And he ends the book talking about the rewarding cycle. This is where we've hit something that we would, we would identify as a, as a healthy, vibrant, growing marriage. That's the essence of the principle that, uh, that God is giving to his people here when it comes to forgiveness. Forgive debts, forgive debts every seven years through your history so that you might forgive each other. And so I want to ask a probing question of you this morning. I want to even give you a couple minutes to just ponder it. What debt do I need to cancel, release, or forgive today, this morning? Now, it might be that somebody owes you money. And you need to, maybe God's just laying on your heart, you know what? Just release them from that obligation. But it's more likely that somebody owes you something relational. Someone's broken your trust. They've hurt you. They've disrespected you. They've been unkind. I want to give you like 15 seconds to just think there's some space in the outline or on your phone or whatever. What debt do I need to cancel, release, or forgive this morning? Go ahead and take a couple of moments. You know, maybe that you're just not there yet, and that's okay. In fact, you know, I'm prematurely asking you to do something that really probably the only the Lord can do in you. And so we're going to get to how do you do that? As we look at this next section of the text, we'll look at this will be our last section this morning, verse 12 of chapter 15. 
He says this, If your fellow Hebrew, a man or woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, you must set him free in the seventh year. When you set him free, do not send him away empty-handed. Give generously to him. From your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press, you are to give him whatever the Lord your God has blessed you with. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I'm giving you this command today. But if your slave says to you, I don't want to leave you because he loves you and your family and is well off with you, take an awl and pierce through his ear into the door and he will become your slave for life. Also treat your female slave the same way. Do not regard it as a hardship when you set him free because he worked for you six years, worth twice the wages of a hired worker. And then the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. Now we're looking at generosity, what we're calling in family that God has called us to be generous within family relationships. As he, uh, you know, as we talked about this idea of forgiving someone, and maybe like you're really not there, we see the picture of the how here in this section. Really what we see is the gospel. You see, what God is patterning his people to do in releasing their slaves every year is something that was attached to his release of their slavery. Now, let me speak to the nature of slavery a little bit here this morning. As Americans or those in the West our lens for slavery is the African slavery that taints our own history, right? That, that one people of a particular race and, and, and skin tone enslaved another based on the amount of melanin in their skin was not actually, that was like a new, heinous, more, more heinous level of slavery compared to ancient times. Usually it was conquered peoples. But even that is not what is being talked about here. This is, if you note the context, your fellow Hebrew. This is within the community of God's people. And this, kind of, this slavery is more of, of servanthood that's based on socioeconomic status or social station, if you will, where someone is sort of on the lower strata and they go and they approach someone and say, I want to work for you if you'll provide for my needs. The analog in our time today really is employment. Right? You give your skills, your talents, your gifts to a company. Hopefully, you give the best of that, right? And they provide for you. Now, let's just hope that your employer isn't one of those people that wants to set his servants free every seven years. <laughs> but the essence of the rhythm of this releasing of the servants is very much attached to the redemption of God's people themselves. That's what he says in verse 15. He says, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you, that is, set you free. That is why I'm giving you this command today. The motivation for not only Moses' command, but for the people's reason for doing this is that, and we sang about it this morning. By the way, I didn't even know we were singing that song, Egypt, or its lyric. But this idea that, that Egypt, uh, Israel's deliverance from Egypt through the Red Sea is a spiritual picture, the New Testament tells us, of our deliverance from sin through the cross of Christ. It's a spiritual picture. And so he's saying to his people, redeeming or setting free your slaves is rooted and based in and motivated by the fact that you've been set free. And so you're to replicate that in the rhythms of your life. And this is a celebratory thing, just like the release of debts in the previous passage where it says that the, the release of debts is proclaimed. This is something that is a positive. It's a celebration such that God's people were told, when you set them free, don't send them away empty-handed. Bless the socks out of them, my version. The socks out of them, you know, uh, from your herds. Everything God's blessed you with, give them some. Why? 
Because that's what happened when Israel was led out of Egypt. If you remember in the Exodus, that God's people didn't leave Egypt with nothing. God caused the Egyptians to just give them a whole bunch of stuff. They essentially plundered, plundered Egypt as they left. And this, brothers and sisters, is a picture of the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we too have been set free from our sin debt. And, and when you ask, how do I cancel or forgive that debt? You can't do it on your own. You do it because God in Christ has forgiven you. That's the motivator that Paul, he says, that's why I'm giving you this command. So Paul, uh, uh, Moses takes something that's transactional, releasing of debts, releasing of slaves every seven years, and he applies it spiritually to their redemption. God's people are unique. They're different. Interestingly, Paul does exactly this later in the New Testament. I want to set this up for you, and then I want to just read the text and let you listen to it. Uh, Paul is writing his letter to uh, the Corinthian church, and uh, his second letter. And in this letter, he says to the Corinthian church, hey, I'm going to send Titus to see you to finish collecting this, the gift that you'd promised to give the Jerusalem church. And oh, by the way, here's an example of the Macedonian church who's way more poor than you are, and they were extremely generous. So be faithful with what you'd promised to do. Apparently, at one point, the Corinthians had promised to give a generous gift, again, just like we do in other parts of the world, the church blessing the church. And so listen to what Paul says, and then listen to where he goes for a motivator at the end of this passage. So it says this. He says, this is 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy... And their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify, according to their ability, and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry of the saints, not just as we hoped. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. So Paul's saying the Macedonian church of their own accord actually begged Paul, hey, we want to help the, the poorer Christians, and they were poor themselves. And they gave well beyond their means, Paul says. He continues, so I urged Titus, just as he begun, had begun, so he would also complete among you, the Corinthian church, this act of grace. Now, as you, Corinthians, excel in everything, you excel in faith, speech, knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this grace of giving. I'm not saying this as a command, rather by means of the diligence of others, I'm testing the genuineness of your faith. So Paul says, I'm sending Titus to allow you to fulfill the, the privilege of giving how you said you're going to give, just as the Macedonians had done. So let me belabor the point. Paul is talking about a financial gift between churches. Moses is talking about freeing slaves. And listen to where Paul goes next. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And Paul, as he so often does in his, in his teaching, he moves from the physical, the temporal, a real issue, a real need, into the spiritual. Why should I be generous with my first fruits, with forgiveness within the family? Because Jesus was overwhelmingly generous with, for me going to the cross, shedding his blood for my sin. 
herein we see a powerful image of the gospel in these slaves set free. And I'll tell you, it doesn't end there. It's even more beautiful because Moses goes on and he says, hey, if your slave actually really loves being a part of your family and he wants to stay committed and actually wants to bind himself to your family, take him to the door frame and drive an all through his ear. Now, aren't you glad we don't do that at GBC when you come here? Hey, you want to make GBC your church home? Come on over. But there's this idea of this servant who's faithfully served and loves his family, now binding himself for the rest of his life to this family. It's what the Bible calls bond servanthood. They become family. Isn't it interesting that Paul and Timothy and Peter and James and Jude, at the beginning of their letters, you know what they call themselves? Bond servants of Christ. It comes right from this text and others like it in the Old Testament. Bond servants of Christ. They see not only have they been set free from slavery, Paul talks about this in his letters, but that they are now bound to him out of their own sense of joy and privilege, that it's a, it's a privilege to be bound to Christ and thereby to his people. It's a powerful image of the church. Paul says, when, when in regards to becoming a part of the family of God. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about all these relationships within the church. And just before he switches to talking about marriage, he says this. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There is a sense in which we are mutually submitted to one another as the local church. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says, we're not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. We're proclaiming ourselves as your servants in his name. We're bound to each other in love. Again, these, are, these passages are overwhelmingly positive. Do you understand what you have in this body, in the local church? Why do we gather week by week? Because we celebrate who God is, that we're freed slaves. We celebrate that we get to, to give of the first fruits of everything we have to watch God's kingdom grow. We celebrate that when we give and receive forgiveness, we see God restore things that could have never seemed to be restored any other way. We celebrate that we are family. You'll hear us talk about the church as a family. If you're new to this church, if you're new to Jesus, my goodness, why wouldn't you want to be a part of this? That's what Moses is saying, that the covenant people of God, there is something different they are mandated to celebrate. So last question, how is God calling us to a greater commitment, indebtedness to each other? We're going to wrestle with this specifically in the spring when we go through Ephesians and look at all uh, four, five, six metaphors that Paul uses of what it means to be bound together in the local church and the intimacy of that relationship. It's going to be a powerful series, and we're really excited about it. But God's people are to be marked by a joyous generosity. My prayer this morning is that one of these areas, even if it's just some small nuanced area that I didn't think was important, that God would speak to your heart in that. Pray with me. Father, we've tackled a lot this morning. And I thank you for this powerful section of Deuteronomy, Lord, that uh, your people, your ancient people model for us in rhythms of release and rhythms of sharing and rhythms of overflow, your goodness to us. Jesus, we thank you for the freedom from slavery to sin that we have in the cross. Would you help that to overflow in our lives collectively as a church as we gather week by week on Sundays, as we do our Bible studies throughout the week and we meet one-on-one, -on -one, but especially when we gather together on Sundays, there'd be a sense that it is a celebration of who we are in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.